0: Please pray with me as we continue to bask in the glory of God's word together. Father, we love your word. Please open our hearts to love it more. We love your son. Please open our hearts to love him more. Father, please come upon us and have your will with us. Lord, we long that we would be changed by contact with you today, by contact with your living word. And we long to be commissioned in your service, Lord. We long for the light of God to come more and more into this dark world. And we long to be the agents by which that light comes. So please help us and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with motor racing. Uh, Last Sunday afternoon, there was a really big motor race uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, and something very unusual happened there. I want to tell you about it. Uh, If you know me, you probably know by now that I'm a pretty big fan of Formula One racing. Uh, Miriam and I watch all of the races together on Sunday afternoons. Uh, Formula One is a sport that began in England uh, back in 1950. And while we were over in England this past summer, I took the children to the racing museum at Silverstone Racetrack. Uh, We sat in a vintage racing car. We geeked out over all the famous cars and racing gear they had on display. Um, So it's a sport that's now more than 70 years old. But the thing that happened last Sunday had never happened before. Last Sunday's Grand Prix in Sao Paulo was won by a young British driver called George Russell. It was his maiden victory, and it was the first time a British driver has won a a Grand Prix all season long. And that meant that as George Russell stood on the top step of the podium, this is something that's never happened in Formula One before, they played God Save the King. And uh, it was a really funny thing, a really odd feeling for me as an Englishman, uh, that my national anthem that I grew up singing has been changed after all these years. Um, And it caused me to think about the words of the song afresh. Now the English stand up and sing, God save our gracious king. Long live our noble king. God save our king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save our King. Uh, and as I thought about those words afresh, um, I realized that there's, there's really quite a lot of love in that song, isn't there? Uh, and I wouldn't try to pretend that very many people mean it when they sing it. <laughs> um, a good portion of the English nation is hoping that Charles's reign will in fact be rather short. Um, <laughs> But nevertheless, ignoring that reality and focusing on the song itself, it's got a lot of pride in it, doesn't it? And hope and admiration, and I think, yes, even love. It presents a high calling for a king of England to live into. Um, And it's quite convenient that that happened last week because today is Christ the King Sunday, um, and we're thinking a lot about kings. And since you guys have never had a king... (laughs) least most of you, um, I'll gladly share mine with you. Um, Because of course, in fact, you do have a king, right? As citizens of heaven, we all serve King Jesus, long to reign over us. Um, So it's important for all of us to know what it means to have a king Um, And since we're still in our sermon series on the life of Moses, we're going to start with thinking about Moses as a king. So two weeks ago, we thought about uh, Moses as priest. Last week, it was Moses as prophet, and today, Moses as king. So see how all of these threads are weaving together today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 33. So please open your Bibles there. It's page 175 of the church Bibles, Deuteronomy 33. Today we're thinking about kings, and I want to think about it in three stages. First, how Moses behaved like a king in Israel. Second, how Jesus is our true king. And third, I want to think about the love of the king. So that's where we're going today. And we're in Deuteronomy 33 on page 175. So let's read the first five verses of Deuteronomy 33 again. It says, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. (laughs) All right, so this is a a curious little song, isn't it? Uh, Verse one says that it's a blessing, but it doesn't sound very much like a blessing, it's more like a hymn so far. Uh, And you may have noticed as you read in your English Bibles just how many footnotes there are to these few verses. There are six footnotes in five verses, A, B, C, D, E, and F. Uh, And if you read at the bottom, uh, read the footnotes, they're all about words that are hard to translate or where the English says something different from the Hebrew underneath. Uh, So we can see that the translators have had to work unusually hard to render this passage in English in any kind of way that makes sense. But I want to go back and try, if I can, to give you a sense of what's going on in the raw Hebrew, uh, to put back in the awkward corners of this text that the translators have smoothed out. Uh, So beginning in verse 2, it says this, And he said, that means Moses said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon them. He shone forth from Mount Paran, He came from the 10,000s of saints with flaming fire from his right hand for them. So I think he is God here, them is surely Israel. It's talking about the situation at Mount Sinai. So far there's no real difference in the meaning of the text, but it's a bit odd that Moses is speaking to Israel and addressing the people as them. Let's go on to verse three. It says, yes, he loved the peoples. That's plural in the text, which is really interesting. All his saints were in your hand. So it's at this point that the text introduces a new pronoun, second person singular. If he is God, then you and your are most likely Moses. But it's a bit mysterious as to the you and your. They get introduced right here. It goes on. So they followed in your steps. Everyone receives your words. And then verse 4 changes the voice again. Now it's Israel speaking. A Torah did Moses command us. So now us is Israel. The inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. Verse five, and he became in Jeshurun king when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So that then, that last one, is the biggest change the translators have made. There in verse five, the ESV says that the Lord became king, but there's no noun in the Hebrew there, only a pronoun. The Hebrew says that he became king, Several of the English translations, including the NIV, just leave it as he. And when you read those versions, the most natural way to interpret it is that the he means Moses. Because Moses is the most recent antecedent for the he coming out of verse 4. But on the other hand, there's a global antecedent for the he, uh, which is the Lord coming out of verse 2. And all the he's in verses 2 and 3 clearly meant God. So all that, all that Hebrew study comes to this. There's a real mystery in this song about who, verse 5, means by he, when it says, he became king in Jeshurun. Who became king? Jeshurun, by the way, is a little nickname for Israel. It's only used four times in the Hebrew Bible. Two of them are here in this chapter. You heard Scott read them. Uh, one more is in the book of Deuteronomy and one in Isaiah. And it seems to be a kind of cutesy nickname from God for Israel, meaning something like, my little one. Um, But back to the question, who's the king? Is it God or is it Moses? I want to think about the broader uh, witness of the Torah and to realize that nowhere else do the books of Moses describe Moses as a king. Nowhere. And in fact, neither does the Torah ever describe God as Israel's king. (coughs) The Psalms do. Yes, they do. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, In Psalm 10, we read, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Psalm 95, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, and so on and so on. But we don't find that language in the Torah. And it's not in Joshua or Judges either. In fact, Judges says repeatedly and with lament that in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not until we get into the book of First Samuel in the Old Testament that we learn clearly that God was thinking of himself as Israel's king. Because when Israel demands that Samuel anoint a king over them, God replies to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's in 1 Samuel 8, uh, verse 7. So there's a tension here deep in the Hebrew Bible over the question of whether the people ought to want a human king or not. Is God enough by himself without a human regent on the throne? Because the book of Judges seems to say, no, God's not enough without a human king. That situation was total chaos. But then 1 Samuel seems to say that God alone should have been enough. And to make it even more confusing, Deuteronomy 17 actually predicts the people's desire for a king, and it seems to have no problem with them wanting that. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 says, when you come to the land and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That's back in Deuteronomy 17. So why then was God offended later on when they acted according to his word and asked for the thing that he'd already approved? This is honestly a puzzle in the Old Testament, and we don't get a clear answer to it until the New Testament. I'll just tease you a little spoiler. The answer's Jesus. (laughs) But before we get there, I want to stay in the Torah and ask, who should we think of as king at the end of Deuteronomy? Who was it that became king in Jesuit? Was it God was it Moses? And I want to think about the question, did Moses behave like a king in Israel? I think the answer to that question is very much so. So on my sabbatical, I read a book by a guy called Danny Matthews that had the title Royal Motifs in the Pentateuchal Portrayal of Moses. And in that book, Matthews makes a really good case that the themes of kingliness are very strong in the life of Moses, maybe even stronger in his life than the themes associated with being a prophet or a priest. And among the many uh, pieces of evidence that Matthews identifies, here I think are the top seven Number one, Moses' education was as a ruler. He spent 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. Number two, Moses gave the people a law, something that was very much the job of a king to do, and he also upheld that law um, by setting up courts and appointing judges. Number three, Moses built the people a kind of temple, which again was something that was always done by kings, and Solomon is the perfect example. Number four, Moses led Israel into consistent military success. We can read in Numbers about how he defeated Amalek, Sihon, Og, and Midian, and of course that was after he defeated Pharaoh in Egypt. Every king worth his salt in the ancient history is mighty in battle. Uh, Number five, in the pattern of his calling, Moses is a lot more like Israel's kings than her prophets. The closest parallels to the calling of Moses are Gideon, who was a judge, a kind of proto-king in Israel, and King Saul. And if you look at the three of them together and how they're called, all three were called in response to a crisis in Israel. All three were doing lowly jobs at the time of their calling that naturally isolated them. Um, All three of them responded to God's call by protesting their own lowliness. And in response, God said exactly the same thing to all three. He made a promise that he would be with them. So there's a lot of uh, uniformity in those calling patterns. Number six, the best job for a Hebrew king to have on his resume before he became king was shepherd. Right? Uh, David, the, the most famous king in Israel, was a shepherd first. He used the tools of his shepherding to defeat Goliath, and he later took the throne as Israel's shepherd. Moses, similarly, was a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. He then used the tools of shepherding his staff to defeat Pharaoh and accomplish the Exodus. And then number seven, this one's a little bit funny, um, but the Hebrew Bible often identifies its kings by their physical attractiveness, uh, so Saul was noted for his great height, and the text says of King David that he had a ruddy complexion with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Solomon's appearance is regularly praised in the book of Song of Songs, and Moses, we remember back in chapter one, was described as a beautiful child, and at the end of his life, the last word spoken about him is, Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was undimmed, and his vigor Unabated physical attractiveness. Um, So I think those are seven strong biblical reasons that Danny Matthews found that Moses was acting like a king in Israel. Um, Although only as a proxy to God as Israel's true king. So maybe a better title for him might be Regent. John Perry came up with that one. Um, so, as we have that list, I think that's a, that's a really helpful list from Matthew's. And I want to go straight on from this point to evaluate the kingliness of Jesus against those same things. So, if this was how kings were identified in Israel, would Jesus have been obviously recognizable to Israel as their true king? Let's go back through those seven things. So, Matthew's list first for Moses that his training was in Pharaoh's palace, he had experience. Uh, Now, did Jesus have any experience that was similar? Uh, I think we say on earth, no. (laughs) But then we might consider to his credit that he did come from the throne room of heaven, uh, where he'd already spent eternity ruling alongside his father, the earth that he had created. So maybe that could count as some prior (laughs) experience. And Jesus often talked about that in his teaching. Uh, Second, Matthew, uh, Matthew says... Uh, that Moses gave the people a law. And this is something Jesus clearly did too. In the Sermon on the Mount and other places, uh, Jesus taught as one who had authority. And there he confirmed that the law of Moses was actually his law. Uh, And again, at the end of his life, Jesus told his disciples a new commandment. I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus was clearly a law giver. Third on the list, Moses built a kind of temple. And Jesus, too, is a temple builder. Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church is a statement of kingly intent. With Peter, Jesus began a temple construction project that is still ongoing. So like many other kings, he's a temple builder. Number four was military success. And this was the sticking point for a lot of the people at the time, because they had been conquered and invaded by Rome. They hated Roman occupation, and they dreamed of a messiah who would raise up an army and fight for a free Israel. All their experience of kings in the past would have led them to hope for this. And all of the other figures who rose up as possible messiahs in the hundred years before Jesus had all taken the fight to Rome. All of them had obviously failed. Many of them had been crucified. So well might the people have asked, how could Jesus be our king when he has no army? Every king has an army. Well, in fact, we learn that Jesus did come to conquer and to win a great victory. And there was a clue to this in the verse I just read. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When most of us hear these words, we somehow always think of the church being on the defensive, that the church will survive the onslaughts of hell. But that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? Because think about a walled city and think about its gates. What are the gates for? They're for defense, right? They're not for attack. A city doesn't send out its gates to fight another city. (laughs) It closes its gates when another army has come to surround it. And if its gates don't prevail, then the city is overrun. The city is lost. And Jesus is saying that the gates of hell will not prevail. That means that his church is going to take hell. His church is going on the attack. It's going to surround and besiege hell so that hell closes its gates in terror. But Jesus says that those gates will not prevail. And that's a victory we can all get excited about. Far more than just taking on Rome or any other human empire, Jesus promises to take on hell itself, the epicenter of all evil and suffering. He's going straight for the heart of Mordor. And that was a conquest that he began at the cross, and actually, he finished at the cross too. The cross was a decisive and eternal victory over sin, Satan, and death. We're just not yet seeing the full realization of that victory across the world, but we will. Suffice it to say that Jesus is a fighting king, and he's mighty and victorious in battle, undefeated. But this battle against hell cannot be won with hell's own weapons. And we, the soldiers of his church, must never make the mistake as others have before us. Hell is not taken with swords or arrows or rocks flung from catapults or guns or bombs or smart weapons or persuasive speeches or propaganda or condemnation. Hell is taken by an entirely different arsenal. As Jesus himself showed us, it's taken by love And joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's taken by prayer and faith and the word of God. Do you realize the raw power of these things? It's funny, isn't it, to think that the Mordor of all evil from which all violence springs crumbles under the greater power of gentleness. But it is so. And this is the victory Jesus is leading us to. Going back to Danny Matthew's list, number five was the manner of calling. And one of the key parts of the way kings were called was God's promise that I will be with you. Suffice it to say that God the Father was very much with Jesus throughout his life and ministry on earth. Number six was the identification of Israel's kings with shepherds. And Jesus made the same connection when he taught, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. And finally, number seven was that Israel's kings were beautiful. They're noted for their lovely appearance. And this one is striking because Jesus is particularly noted in Scripture for not having a lovely appearance, isn't he? Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this pattern is changed with Jesus, radically changed. But that same prophecy in Isaiah asserts that despite appearances, the servant will be exalted and kings will shut their mouths because of him. So in the end, Jesus does bear all the biblical marks of Israel's true king. And in so doing, he resolves that ancient tension that we saw between Judges and 1 Samuel. Should Israel's king be a man, or should God himself be Israel's king? Yes. Both. Uh, The only way to resolve this tension was for God to become man. It solves the recurring problem of judges where Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it solves the pain of 1 Samuel where God says, the people have rejected me as their king. Jesus put God back on the throne where he belongs and all is well. So Moses was never Israel's true king and neither for that matter was David. They were both stand-ins following a pattern very similar to the priest and the prophet that we saw in the past two weeks. They took a role that God had appointed for them for now in preparation for the one who was to come. And I wanna close this study of kings today by thinking about love. You think king, you think love. Uh, Perhaps the idea of a king like King Charles III doesn't immediately make you think of love. He doesn't love me, and I might have little love for him, despite standing up to sing a national anthem that's rather full of love. But I want to notice from the Bible how important love is to the role of a king. It's vital to his role that he love his people. Perhaps that's his very first job, and it's vital for the unity and prosperity of his country that they love their king. Pretty much all kings end up being first, lawgivers, and second, military leaders. Those are core jobs of uh, kingliness, uh, and the nations of those kings depend on them fulfilling those roles. Um, But to do either of those jobs well takes love. To write a wise and just law requires love for all the people and their disparate needs. And to raise up an army who will give their own lives in defense of your nation takes a king that can make his people love him and believe in what he stands for. So I would say that love is the currency of kings. A prophet asks for our attention, a priest for our faithfulness, but a king for our love. And conversely, it's a good king who is a loving king. That's a trope of literature. And I want to celebrate today that we have, in our present reality, such a good and loving king. Find Deuteronomy 33 one more time, and we'll see this together in this text. Page 175, if you lost it. Deuteronomy 33, I want to notice um, that in this passage that's about kings, about the Lord, and about Moses becoming king in Israel, it's also a passage that's just full of love and affection. So Deuteronomy 33 verse 3 says that the Lord loved his people. And this word is unique in all the Hebrew Bible. It's only found here in this passage. It's a very intimate word for love. It means to cherish in the bosom, kind of like a mother with her newborn child. The Lord loved his people. The song calls Israel Jeshurun. God's sweet nickname for his people, a term of parental delight and endearment. And verse 27 says, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Israel is enclosed and surrounded in a kind of divine hug. Verse 29 concludes the song, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Happy are you whose king is the Lord. All that's in Deuteronomy 33, but how much more clearly can we see those same themes revealed in King Jesus? The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Our king has loved us with an everlasting love and sung over us with loud songs of love and given us a law that's just full of love in which the first two commandments are both love and the new commandment is also to love one another. He's the best king ever because he's the most loving king ever and as our true sovereign, he deserves our unrestrained love. Citizens of heaven, do you love your king? Do you love him? you love his law, saying with David, your law is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb? When will you fight his battles, the battle against sin and Satan, even as far as death, even to the point of shedding your own blood? Going to your knees to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Living his life of righteousness in this unrighteous and ungodly world, even though it cost you everything. And pouring out your heart and soul to the last drop to love others for his sake, even though it be thankless and even though it cost you everything, because he is lovely. Because he is worthy of our highest and most devoted love, and because he is our king. Thanks be to God.